0: Hey, everyone. You're listening to The Youth Vote, where we explore the different ways that young people interact with politics. I'm Isaac Goff Mitchell. Today on the show, I'm speaking with David LaRock, host of the Sirens of Progress podcast. It's going to be a little bit of a unique episode because rather than a traditional interview where I ask questions to a candidate or an activist, it was more of a discussion between two people who are part of the progressive community about a certain area of interest. So um, it's something we might do more moving forward, but we're not entirely sure. Regardless... Today, David and I discussed the Supreme Court and the impact that it might have on our future and on the future of the progressive movement.
1: Uh, My name is David LaRock. I'm the host of Sirens of Progress, which is a left-leaning progressive podcast where I focus on politics. Uh, I, I do a lot of history. And uh, mainly talk about leftist takes regarding ongoing events.
0: I was going to say, I know I went back and I looked at some of the different episodes. The one I listened to was your episode on voter suppression, but mm-hmm. you cover, it seems like, a wide variety of topics. Like I saw, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so we talked about COVID, and then he talked about voter suppression, and now he's talking about Belarus. And it's just like, like I guess my question before we jump into the content of this episode is like, what can listeners expect moving forward from your show?
1: Well, I'm, you know, I'm a little scatterbrained, but I I have a a lot of interest in a lot of different things. And I I think when it comes to leftist content, I think there's, you know, not really a niche carved out for us yet. So I think keeping broad and keeping uh, looking at different things all throughout the world, you know, and specifically, you know, not keeping things Eurocentric and kind of keeping people up to date on leftist movements all around the globe and news all around the globe, I think is uh, absolutely important.
0: Well, awesome. Um, I highly encourage anybody listening to this and anybody who likes this show to go check out um, Sirens of Progress. So I want to go ahead, though, we're doing something a little different this episode. It's not going to be as much of an interview as it is like a conversation about a topic. And our topic is the Supreme Court. We're recording this on uh, November 5th. So right now the election's kind of in limbo, but it's looking like Biden's going to get the presidency and the Senate is a little less (laughs) secure for the left, (laughs) but they'll also probably hold on to the house. But before we jump into any of that, I just wanted to ask you, Donald Trump has appointed three Supreme court justices. So a third of our Supreme court are Trump nominees in your opinion. And from your perspective as somebody on the left, how does this bode for the future of our nation? And like, what are going to be the ramifications of having three Donald Trump nominees who are all also like fairly young on our (laughs) Supreme court?
1: Um, I think it's complicated because I think more than anything, it causes people on the left to really reflect on, you know, the status quo of the Supreme court and taking a look at, the facts that the, these people serve lifelong terms and, um, and that these people aren't elected officials, that they are appointed. And I, I think it's, it's really, in a way, it's really daunting for leftist thought. I, I think in the future, if, if the Supreme Court is a conservative majority, then it, you know, it goes without saying that I think any, any case that arrives there will get a conservative consensus. So it's a challenge to overcome for sure, but it doesn't feel like one that's gonna be easily overcome.
0: Right. Like, it definitely calls into question a lot of, like, I think a lot of people are having thoughts about the legitimacy of the court now, and of (laughs) the system. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's lived through the Trump era, and who's watched these three nominations be pushed through in some unorthodox ways. So obviously, Mm -hmm. um, Merrick Garland was prevented from getting appointed. And then Mm -hmm. we got uh, what Neil Gorsuch, and then Kavanaugh, just like, obviously shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. And then lastly, we have this or what was it like eight days before the election or something Mm like that yeah you get amy coney barrett do you consider any of these justices as legitimate nominations or do you think that democrats and leftists have a like a good reason to consider some of these as illegitimate supreme court justices
1: i think there's absolutely a good reason to, to to not consider these legitimate supreme court justices you know obviously it's it's kind of beating a dead horse at this point but the republican party was absolutely hypocritical in their statements in 2016 as compared to now and you know even people like lindsey graham telling us to hold them accountable and to tell you know to just to hold us to their word that they put in 2016 but it feels like the the nomination for merrick garland should have gone through you know if if this is the precedent that is sent is is set now then it absolutely should have been the precedent sent originally and if not then amy coney barrett shouldn't be a supreme court justice right now
0: right so it's almost like like for me i guess it's almost a situation where it's like you can have one but not the other in a way it's like either like you can't appoint supreme court justices during a a presidential election year or you can but the republicans wanted it both ways at the same time and it just feels like there's like this double standard almost that the left has to follow that the right doesn't
1: no i agree I, i think. A lot of times the right is, I think the right has a you know rhetoric that justifies hypocrisy by saying it's okay when we do it because we're doing it out of the you know the preservation of conservatism or the preservation of Republican thought when in a country that is you know somewhat devastated politically by McCarthyism and by anti-Leftist rhetoric for years and years and years to, to claim that the left is trying to suppress the right and use that as rhetoric to justify, this hypocrisy in doing anything it takes to maintain or obtain Republican power. It's just completely ridiculous. And I think anybody that holds two statements that any one of them says next to each other, will see inconsistency. And I think inconsistency is really the defining factor of the uh, Republican party right now.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. The idea of inconsistency now, obviously. So like I said, to anyone who's listening to this, whenever we release it, uh, it's November 5th and we see that Lindsey Graham, even with that hypocrisy, pretty easily beat Jamie Harrison and won his reelection. And I guess I wonder, so obviously, like the voters are not going to take care of this, right? Like we see that these Republicans, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, like they're, they're going to keep their seats probably until they die or decide to run for president or whatever. Right. So my question to you is like, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris get into office and Republicans hold on to the House, what do you think they should do moving forward to start to address these problems with the Supreme Court?
1: It's tough because seeing Joe Biden win the presidency is a breath of relief in some ways, but in a lot of ways, it really doesn't mean much if we don't have the Senate because Mitch McConnell, I believe will be fully committed to making sure that any pushes, you know, the Biden administration uh, brings forth is gonna be shut down, you know, completely. And I, I think that this, you know, the team, the team sport, you know, outlook that Americans have on politics leads to this kind of just insane battling. You know, I, I don't, I don't really know a better way to put it.
0: Right. It's like, kind of like the idea of when Mitch, when Obama got elected and Mitch McConnell said, my life goal is to make him a one-term president.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's exactly, you know, I, I it, it even goes back to people like Newt Gingrich back in the nineties, who was doing everything that he could to get Bill Clinton impeached. And since then, I, I believe there's just been such a huge partisan divide to that, you know, you're either all for the Republicans or you're all for the Democrats, but you can't. It's just ridiculous to me because I, I, there's so much within the Republican Party that just doesn't, you know, it doesn't add up to a consistent and focused message, especially with people like Lindsey Graham, who, <laughs> <God>. you know, <laughs> it's people like Lindsey Graham, who will spend their whole lives, you know, talking about their best friend, John McCain, but the second John McCain drops dead he's all of a sudden head over heels for Trump.
0: Right. Yeah. It feels very spineless in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit, because I know that you have on your show talked about like voter suppression and we know that these are issues that will, issues around voter suppression are going to be taken up to the Supreme Court in our lifetime, probably within the next like five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. What do you think we should do? And when I say we, it's like this royal we of like the left and the Democrats. If the Democrats... For, for some miracle get the senate and they've got the house and they've got the presidency either this year or if we get that in 22 what changes should we make to the supreme court to fix um, these problems
1: well i think you know fdr back in the 40s originally pushed for 15 members on the supreme court and i think uh, we're long overdue for that i think it, i saw something on uh, time magazine that said you know if we were applying that same logic then to now we would be up to 27 supreme court justices so i think it's not a radical or unconstitutional idea to talk about you know expanding the courts especially when if the majority is you know six to three with a conservative majority and the supreme court is supposed to be a nonpartisan branch of government then we absolutely should be equalizing that especially if the united states wants to continue functioning as the two-party system that it's fallen into
0: so you think like one of the major steps would be expanding the court?
1: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. I think expanding the court and possibly it, uh, it would be completely unprecedented, but, you know, making the court a nominated position or alternatively giving them term limits. Okay.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely agree about expanding the court. Like I I feel like that issue gets way more heat than it needs to. Like, if you Mm. say you want to expand the court, people are like, oh, shit, that's a communist. You know what I mean? Like, they just, they don't, there's some, like, weird connection with expanding the court being considered super radical.
1: When there's 300 million Americans, it just makes sense to not have nine people be on the highest court in the, you know, in the country. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know, like, most European countries that have, like, a Supreme Court equivalent, they have many more members like germany i believe has like a 16 member or a 15 member court at their right. highest level i said that now without looking it up so it's going to be someone's going to like tweet yeah. at me and be like oh you idiot it's actually 17 <laughs> but um that's interesting about expanding the court so with the idea of term limits do you think that that would help just kind of getting people in and out so we wouldn't have situations in which it's like a ruth bader ginsburg or a clarence thomas where they're in for like 40 years
1: It's complicated because I think a lot of people that are against the idea of term limits, as far as the left is concerned, would look at someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and say that, you know, it is absolutely necessary to keep people in for as long as possible that are going to continue to push for positive things. But I, I would argue that if that is the precedent that we set, then obviously now we have Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett for as long as they're alive
0: Right. Yeah. And they're young yeah. too. And that's the thing that freaks me out about these Trump appointees is he appoints mm-hmm. people that are very young and will be in like like I'll be sixty and be like, Oh, Amy Coney bear it's like finally getting old. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's, no, it's crazy. It's, I mean,
1: I agree. And it's it's that is the scariest part to me. And that's why I think it's it's really <laughs> it's really foolish to underestimate Donald Trump. He he does know he's a very competent Republican as far as getting things done goes.
0: Yeah. And that's and true. Repub-
1: I think Republicans, in in the broadest sense, push mostly for packing courts as best as they can, because I, I think most of them know that a huge majority of Americans don't agree with a lot of the insanely authoritarian and draconian takes that the Republican Party wants.
0: Kind of one of the last things I wanted to pivot this interview or this this discussion towards is the idea of the left and progress and what that looks like with this six to three majority on the Supreme Court. Do you think that in the status quo, as things are now, it looks like it's going to be Biden as president, Republicans maintain the Senate, Democrats maintain the House? Is there any hope in the next two years that we're going to get any sort of progressive change? Or do the next two years look like Biden executive ordering some things and then the Supreme court shutting that down and just stalemate. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, I think it's going to be a, kind of a mix of the two. I think when you look at candidates like AOC and Ilhan Omar, you, you get a lot more hope because it, and especially people like Bernie Sanders, where, where there's just so much enthusiasm behind true leftist thought as opposed to establishment Democrats. And I think we're seeing pushes for, you know, marijuana legalization, pushes for $15 minimum wage, and uh, Medicare being incredibly popular issues. So I think with most people wanting these things, and especially after years of it being like of it being so taboo, I think Americans are going to want more progressives in in Congress, without a doubt.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I guess like where my fear comes is let's say the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders pass these progressive policies. I'm really nervous that like they pass a uh, healthcare for all. And then the six to three, you know, conservative majority Supreme court somehow like rules that that's unconstitutional in a way, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that's where no, I really I start to have anxiety about the future.
1: No, I agree. And that's the thing is it's like, what, what's so frustrating for me is the fact that, Amy Coney Barrett specifically calls herself a textualist and proudly says that she's a textualist, you know, along with Antonin Scalia being the originalist and to me it's it's like that is not a legitimate take on the constitution. It's not a legitimate take on on the laws of the United States because they were written to be changed and I know that that's something that is constantly said but they were written to adapt.
0: <laughs> yeah. Can you explain to people who don't understand, what is a textualist? So when you say that, like, what does that actually mean, uh, as far as like, what her perspective is on the Constitution?
1: Well, essentially, as far as I I know, a textualist looks at the Constitution, I I believe with through the lens of the way that the words were written, and how they would have been interpreted at the time that they were written. I, I believe that is the it, it, it get I, I get confused with originalism sometimes, but it's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah, I mean, I know you're not like a legal scholar, right? So yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on on the spot. It's just the reason I ask is because like I think some people don't realize how unique, perhaps, like that's a nice way to put it. Her yeah. perspective is. It, um,
1: it's really it, yeah. It isn't a very common way of looking at the Constitution, I don't think, and. Specifically it's it's kind of counterintuitive because I it is a legitimate it's legitimate to say that if she was looking at the constitution as the way the founding fathers had intended it when they wrote it then she wouldn't have the position that she does to be looking at the constitution you know what i mean yeah it, it's the the founding fathers were incredibly misogynistic incredibly racist and you know were absolutely advocates for slavery so i think that's a very scary outlook to have if you know if she can say well technically when the constitution was written they wanted slaves all of a sudden you know if the supreme court rules it this is a huge if but you know if the supreme court rules it that could be uh, apparently a legitimate take because of the textualism
0: well and it definitely concerns me the idea that the supreme court could go in and try to interpret things doing this like like this assumptuous work i guess where they're like oh like i think that this founding father was probably meaning this when they wrote, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, uh, it seems right. like there's so many steps you have to take there rather than thinking, okay, what are the core protections that individuals are supposed to be yeah. granted by our constitution?
1: Yeah, I mean, we can't read the minds of people that have been dead for 200 years, you know? Right. It's, we don't, we don't know what people were thinking back then. We, we have ideas based on texts, but it's, what we need to be looking at is, is what it legally says we can't be looking at it from, you know, what they would have thought when they wrote it, because what they thought when they wrote it is irrelevant when they don't have a say in our in our politics anymore.
0: No, that's a really good point. I mean, it's just to 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 me, and I obviously we agree on this, it, it feels like a really outdated view to think, okay, we should have a country right now that is the exact same as how uh, a founding father 200, you know, however many, 250 yeah. years ago, wanted it to
1: be. No, I agree. It's like, this country, and you know, the system in place might have worked back then, but it simply wouldn't work now. The, the United States has expanded so much; we're infinitely bigger. We ha- our outreach across the globe is so much bigger. We need to be completely reevaluating the things we do, and completely reevaluating the Constitution constantly.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a living, breathing document, and uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about before we get into kind of like closing up this conversation is so. Obviously, things look a little bit stressful if you're somebody who identifies as a leftist or a progressive, Mm -hmm. because, you know, even with Joe Biden becoming the president, you think, okay, he's pretty moderate. There's not really a lot that he's going to do to help me out. Right. And then you think the Senate, you still have Mitch McConnell doing his thing. And you've got the Supreme Court that's going to be ruling unfavorable rulings probably for Mm -hmm. quite a while what do you say to people who are feeling that anxiety? Like, is, is there hope? Is there a reason why, you know, I, the random young progressive should think, okay, like the future is actually bright?
1: Um, I, I don't, I have to be honest. I don't think that there's much hope in the democratic party as far as establishment Democrats are concerned. And I think that is because you saw with the DNC both times over, uh, you know, intentionally delegitimizing Bernie Sanders' campaign and you know, Joe Biden declaring that he beat the socialists and Kamala Harris saying, we're not leftists, we're not socialists and Joe Biden saying, you know, nothing will fundamentally change. It's, I, I don't think there's a lot of hope there, but I do think that you know, the frustrations that leftists are having with the democratic party give me hope because I believe the more voters feel this way and the more we pressure Congress people and the more we pressure legislators I think it, it'll legitimately lead to some to some real change.
0: Okay. So you kind of think that progressives can start to change the party rather than ho- hoping for the party to change for them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's very a pessimistic outlook, but I don't think the Democrats for the most part really care about progressives. And I, I think in a lot of ways, we are the equivalent of the evangelicals to the Republicans. We are just necessary for their voting base, you know? I don't think they really have our best interests at heart. I, I think they give us bits and pieces here and there, but nothing is an actual leftist step. Everything is, you know, everything further left of centricism is frowned upon. Right. And and I think that it can be really daunting. And I, I think the, the the United States and, and the world broadly have just completely shut down, you know, leftist thought. And it's immediately associated with the Soviet Union, immediately associated with Cuba, which is just A gross misinterpretation of of, uh, leftist thought. And I think what progressives need to do right now is just focus on organizing on their own, forming unions, forming coalitions, forming, it's rallying together under ideas, forming political action committees, you know, because it's just the Democrats aren't going to get done what we want them to get done until we pressure them.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate your perspective on that. The last thing I did want to ask you as we kind of wrap up is, and this is a question I actually ask to uh, every guest that I have on the show, is our core demographic of people who listen to the show are like 18 to 27, 28-ish. It's that kind of young person range. Noting that demographic, is there anything that you want to say to the listeners of the show, like a final message for them?
1: I would say first of all that it is incredibly important for any person, wherever they live, in whatever country, whatever county, whatever state, to be involved or at least aware of the political situation around them, because the second you turn your back on politics, they will go for the throat. And I I I, I believe that, you know, young people are coming out in droves this election, and we're seeing that young people can absolutely turn the vote. Young people can absolutely turn the tides of politics, you know. Uh, young people in, in Congress are, are incredibly popular. And I, I think no matter what your take is, no matter what side you sit on, it, just remaining involved and in, you know, keeping other people informed is, is the, the most crucial thing you can do.
0: Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for speaking with me. And again, I just want to shout out your show, Sirens of Progress. Um, like I said, I'm currently working through the voter suppression episode and you've also got a Jim Crow era episode that I really want to listen to before I kind of jump into your most recent stuff on Belarus but really thank you very much for speaking with me and everybody if you haven't check out Sirens of Progress wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me dude.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you so, so much to David for speaking with me today. Next week, we're going to have an interview with James Coleman, the newly elected South San Francisco City Council member. James is the youngest ever and the first member of the LGBTQ community to be elected to this seat. You are not going to want to miss it. The Youth Vote is hosted by me, Isaac Mitchell, produced and edited by Jamie Hobbs, with cover art from Cole Callahan, intro and outro music by Ennio Gallucci, and social media management by Bridget Junker.